Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Nubar Afyan, is a business leader, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. In 2015, along with other descendants of survivors of the 1915 Armenian Genocide, he co-founded the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative. This initiative, as Nubar explains, seeks to empower modern-day survivors of genocide and mass atrocities through a variety of projects, the most high profile of which is a $1 million prize for individuals who are saving lives and promoting humanitarian values in the face of extreme adversity. And a side note here, a future episode of this podcast will feature one of these prize laureates. Nubar's own family history and life story is one of survival. He was born Born in Beirut in the early 1960s, but his family took a circuitous route to get there, escaping genocide and then subsequent persecution. And much of this history was relayed to Nubar by his great aunt, with whom he lived and grew up in Beirut, and who lived to be 101 years old. Uh, this is a very interesting conversation, not only about Nubar's life journey and that of his family, but also about how communities remember and honor historic atrocities visited upon them. I think you will appreciate this one. Uh, just one quick note before we begin. Uh, our connection dropped about halfway through this conversation, and I called Nubar up on a different line. That's why, if you're wondering, the sound quality is slightly different from the first half of the conversation to the second. This actually had never really happened to me before, but uh, the vagaries of phone lines and, and internet connections, I suppose, sometimes throw contingencies these ways. In any event, it is a great conversation. I think you will appreciate it. Now, here is my conversation with Nubar Afian. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the Aurora Prize is part of a broader humanitarian initiative, the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative, which we started together with uh, two other co-founders, uh, Vartan Grigorian from the Carnegie Corporation and Ruben Vartanian, who's a philanthropist uh, and former investment banker. And the idea behind it really was to, on the occasion of the centennial commemoration of the Armenian genocide, uh, to, to really launch an initiative that brought sharp focus on those today, those people whose work involves risking their lives to save others, um, and, and really using that, uh, this, this uh, initiative and the prize to really draw attention to what it is that makes people 
uh, actually step in and, and save others. And, and the connection to our experience is that ultimately Armenians today are pretty much all descendants of survivors and they were saved. They were helped by, you know, sometimes missionaries, sometimes, you know, random folks who happen to just want to offer their assistance. And that, and that sentiment is is something that is pretty pretty uh, moving. It's pretty um, kind of, uh, uh, I mean, the hero is a strong word, but it's it, it invites people, everybody, to really ask the question: Would I do that? What motivates them? And how can I support their work? If you really appreciate those kinds of things. Now, the second part of this is also that we also wanted to to really think about what is the journey of a survivor from that trauma, survivor from genocide, survivor from war, survivor from any number of things, all the way back to standing up on their feet and actually beginning to thrive. And that in that journey, which is again something that is closely related to our uh, experience and heritage, we see needed in many, many places in the world today. We're seeing all sorts of persecution. We're seeing refugees fleeing out of different places, and they all are going through the same journey of recovering and then you know finding new meaning in what they do. So part of the mission of Aurora is also to really engage in a dialogue globally around that aspect, which is how to, how to help survivors revive and then start thriving. And, and in that regard, We've done quite a lot of uh, work, in both in a very short period of time, in the last three years, to convene. We have these Aurora Dialogues that, that are taking place around these topics. And so we can talk more about it, but generally it is, a, it is an initiative. Maybe the last thing I'll say is the, 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 the words that have emerged out of the last three, four years of work we've done in this area that most resonate with, with what we're talking about is this notion of gratitude in action. Um, if you're a survivor, at some point when you can, you want to express your gratitude. It's one thing to just be thankful for getting a second chance at life. It's nothing to actually move that gratitude into an action. And, and the Aurora Initiative is one way in which one can channel their action to help those that are doing the same type of work today uh, persist and, and contribute. Uh, the two award winners we've had, or laureates we call them, Last couple of years, Marguerite Barankitze from Burundi and Tom Katina, who does his work in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan, both of them have saved thousands and thousands of lives. And through this through this award, we're able to we're able to bring uh, a lot of resources to their work and and a lot of collaborators. And we, we plan to continue to do that. And, and I should say, I meant to speak with Marguerite for a future episode, and we'll get sort of more into her story. Um, but I suppose as like a, a living memory or a living memorial, I suppose, to the Armenian genocide, which happened, you know, over a hundred years ago, um, how, like, how do you choose who your laureates are? Oh, well, the, the good news is we don't choose in the sense that the founders uh, are, are not part of that process. Uh, there is a the, the royal judging the, the royal you, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The judge. Yeah, I know. We're not, we're not very comfortable <laughs> being royal. Um, so um, the, there, there's a judging panel that um, we have assembled uh, over the last few years. And in fact, one of us, Vartan Gregorian, is in, engaged in that. But in, in that capacity, he's not doing it as a founder, but he's doing it as, a, as an expert uh, in this field. Um, and it involves a number of, a number of others um, that come from different fields that, that uh, um, and these are, I mean, just to give you some 
some examples, uh, Oscar Arias, uh, former yeah. president of Costa Rica, Shirin famous, Badi. Famous in the UN circles, I should say. As, as uh, absolutely, in yes, the, yes, the yes. So these are you know, Nobel Prize Prize winners, people who've dedicated their, their activities in part to humanitarian and human rights activities. Um, you know, for, I'll, I'll, you know, Gareth Evans uh, is, is, is on this panel. So uh, Bernard Kushner just joined. Samantha Power just recently was added. So this this <coughs> group of experts uh, is is charged with the responsibility of selecting finalists. Um, in the first year, there were three. Last year, there were five finalists. This year, we expect again to to announce the finalists in, in on April 24th. And and from there there'll be one selected as a laureate. But really, this is not about this is not a category you want to win in if you if you if you know what I mean because yeah. it's a it's it's very much more the world honoring honoring you as opposed to having won anything. And and I might say to your audience one other uh, interesting twist that we introduced in this in this award that we think is important and and consistent with the notion of gratitude and action. Um, our award is is nominally a 1.1 million dollar uh, award, and but the way it works is that the laureate receives 100 thousand dollars themselves to support their work, but then they select up to three other institutions who have either inspired their work or whose work they find uh, uh, very effective in their in their fields. And they then turn around and select those institutions as recipients of the remaining million dollars. And what that has done is actually it has turned these recipients of other people's generosity, the very folks that we're honoring, into donors to other people's activities. And it's an interesting thing to see this kind of circle, just like the circle of survivor turned savior turned survivor. In this case, in their world, they're generally looking for resources to support their work, but now they're in a position, usually for the first time, to support the work of others and in that way make a de facto network of like-minded people in the world uh, whose work deserves this type of attention. So that's been an interesting, interesting aspect of this that, you know, there's 14 countries in which humanitarian projects have received substantial financial assistance through our prize but the intermediaries have been the very heroes that we're honoring well that's your your gratitude in action i i i suppose that's right that's right um so so i'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned mentioned uh, samantha power because you know going back i think my knowledge of the armenian genocide um began with the opening chapter of her book um a problem from hell america in the age of genocide in which um you know she introduced me and i think probably a lot of other people who are new in this field to the the armenian genocide uh, i was hoping we could by way of explaining what happened over 100 years ago have you talk about your own family's uh, experience in that genocide and um so so just uh, i suppose to start can you uh, i guess tell me a little bit about your family your family's history in in the region well, sure. Um, my family um, has uh, largely lived in in what was Western Armenia historically, uh, which is modern day Turkey, for hundreds, at least eight hundred years, um, that we have some sense about. And and you know the the land that is now Eastern Turkey 
which is Western Armenia, has historically been been uh, uh, inhabited by Armenians that go that goes back, you know, more than two thousand, three thousand years. Um, so, so the but as waves of different governments came and 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 kind of different forces took over this lands, um, the the Ottoman Empire was what was established and ruled that land uh, at the turn of the century into the 20th century. And even before then, there were lots of other forces. And then my family was living amidst these, these situations. I, I happened to have grown up um, uh, with a great aunt, uh, my grandfather's sister, who lived in our, in our house and with my family for the 21 years that I lived uh, within my household. And uh, and she passed away at the age of 101. So I was I had a ready source of someone who lived from 1893 on, and whose direct uh, memories and, and 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 history I can rely on as so opposed to you grew up with a I've survivor. Read. You grew up with a survivor. I grew in, up in your house. With, with a survivor. In fact, with a with a survivor of that regime, but also the sister of. And I'll tell you my grandfather's situation, which where they were taken away to be killed. Uh, she was not taken away and to be killed, but she was a survivor as an Armenian from that period. She, she escaped persecution, and she ended up going to many different countries, ultimately ending up in Lebanon, where, where, where my family was established. But I can come back to that. So the point is, I know from her living testimony um, what what life was. And, and Armenians in the at the turn of that century were fully integrated members of, of the Ottoman Empire. There were many other minorities, but on that land, the, the largest minority were Armenian Christians. And, and you know, of course, it's, it, it was always an uncomfortable existence being a very, you know, a minority of different, you know, language and traditions and, 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 and religion. But nevertheless, Armenians had learned to adapt and had adapted uh, to that reality, because I should say, Ar- Ar- Armenians are yeah. generally Christian, um, and and Armenians most, are much of the Ottoman Christian, Empire were, yeah, yes. were were yes, uh, yes, mostly exactly. Muslim, yeah. But you know, they were they coexisted. I mean, I I don't um, in in I've asked this question many many a time of her, and I think historically religious animosity was used by politicians to drive what they wanted to do, but hardly ever, at least in these situations. Mm-hmm. Was that the the driving force of the difference between people? It was rather mm-hmm. more nationalism that was the religion of the day, not religion right. driving other feelings. But which was, but of course, like the and, and the, the, the Ataturk uh, innovation, which was to sort of you know foment this Turkish and, and nationalism. And, yeah, and even and even before then, the the fall of the Ottoman Empire was largely driven by the defeat of at the time Ottoman kind of identity in all of, you know, much of Europe, and they were basically withdrawing and, 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 and regrouping, if you will, within Turkey, it used to be that they had far greater lands and that they that they ruled over. And over time, that had shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, and they were further uh, losing effectively their influence in lots of other places. So there was this general notion of, of, of self and kind of, of, of identity that was in the air. And of course, usually politicians... Either in power or who want to get in power, use that to to very sense. But regardless, I'm no historian, so let me speak about what I do know about, which was the the situation with my family was that they my grandfather was the, on my father's side. I, I know less about my my mother's uh, uh, family because most of them died, 
but but on my father's side, my grandfather, who, who lived just outside Istanbul in a town called Adapazar, uh, was basically in a couple of different businesses. They 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 owned a rather large uh, uh, um, import export business in the agriculture food sector, and they also had a representation of the. Deutsche Industrial Bank, which was a German bank at the time uh, with lots of activities in Turkey, uh, which they were representatives of. My father and his brother, uh, sorry, my grandfather and his brother spoke fluent German and did business at the time. This was, again, the 19, early 1900s. And as a result of the the, the ensuing decisions that were made to to, uh, effectively exile and and kill off Armenians in in, in then, that time's Turkey, um, you know, the, the genocide occurred and, and between 1915 and 1918 and beyond, there were a lot of a lot of killings, a lot of deportations and a lot of just death. The ones that survived are the ones that inspire, well, first of all, account for most of the Armenians that are alive today. And it is in there, the, both the victims and the survivors' memory, that we're doing these projects. And, and you know, it's worth pointing out something like <coughs> maybe 2 million Armenians were killed. One to, uh, I know there, there's yeah, no Yeah, it's hard, hard to estimate. I think the numbers, the numbers, the, the best estimates out there put that about 1.5 million. I think it's, it's a difficult uh, number to recreate. But it certainly is not a couple of hundred thousand people as, as, as the nihilists right. um, want to kind of say because at some point if you make the number small enough then you could just say accident of war yeah and of course there is no there's no acceptable number but in any case it wasn't it wasn't a small number it was a very large percentage of the population and and uh that that was affected and and these killings you say took place in the context of of world war one mostly uh and well you know in the context context is the is kind of a in quotations in the sense that the holocaust it was in the context of world war ii it was a very dedicated it was a very dedicated decision to cleanse the country of uh non non non-turks and it waited and it reached not just to armenians it affected Assyrians, it affected Greek Orthodox. Subsequently, the whole Smyrna situation later on was was basically trying to get rid of uh, of, that, of of Greeks, and and there were persecutions. They were careful not to persecute all of them at once, and so the Armenians kind of took the brunt at first because they were viewed to be the not only the largest but the most threatening from the point of view that if if Armenians ever did want to do anything about it, there were regions of Turkey where there were no Turks. I mean, it was all Armenians. And so I think there was a perceived threat that they wanted to eliminate. They, of course, they used at the time all sorts of connections between then uh, Armenians and Russians who were obviously instigating a lot in that region at the time. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. war, you know, I'd say context and pretext are different things. Certainly there was a war right. pretext that was used to do yeah. this. And, and, and in most genocides, thing, yes. you know, yeah. too, you know, as, as you said, the Holocaust, too, you know, <laughs> g- genocides, um, you know, often happen in the context of, of war because it's easier to kind of foment the kind of nationalism required. Well, the logistics to, to, is there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and the mindset is there and the logistics are there. So, and I'll tell you, you asked about my family. It's a kind of an unusual, unusual situation for us um, in the sense that in uh, at the time the genocide or even before the Berlin Baghdad railway was being built. And as a result, there were German officers and German construction and Austrian construction firms and engineers building out this railway that, that, that went through Turkey. And it is the very same railway that was used to deport Armenians into basically desert marches where they 
died. There's or is the famous desert where this happened now, modern day Syria. Um, and and the reason that's significant and uh, for us and for uh, for my family is because my grandfather and his brother, being two of the people who were basically um, kind of remanded to be taken away by these trains to their death, um, effectively were saved by German officers who manned one of the train stations, who took them in, realizing that they spoke German, and basically hid them and, and gave them uniforms to basically be able to work within these within this particular train station in Belemedic. And effectively, they in turn, my grandfather in his memoirs and his sister who lived with us, has described in some detail, that they then would go into the trains and try to pull out people they thought were going to lead the revival of the nation. So priests, educators, intellectuals, they couldn't get tens of thousands of people out, but they tried to, and many of them refused to come out, and they went on to their death to try to get at least a cadre of folks that could eventually, when this ended, help recreate the country, uh, and and that and that is a is an, a bit of an irony because here you are as a as a military. The Germans had an alliance with the Turks and very much facilitated this activity. And that's not my point of view. The German government, you may know, two years ago basically took an official stance that in fact the German military was involved in 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 supporting and facilitating the genocide of Armenians based on their own records. Um, that It's ironic that in the middle of that, the human spirit was alive in the sense that many, many Armenians, not just my grandfather, were saved by these German officers who went against the mandates of their military and just were, were, were willing to give a second chance at life to a few people. So your grandfather then survived the, the genocide by working <laughs> with the German military on the railroads, um, exactly. How, when the war ended, where did they end up? Where did your grandfather end up? When the war ended, my grandfather and his family escaped to Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the reasons for that was that they, when they were in Turkey, used to have business relations with uh, uh, these food producers in, in Bulgaria that they used to import and export goods from. And so they ended up going to Bulgaria, where, he's, where my grandfather settled. That's where my father was born. Uh, in Bulgaria, as genocide survivors, they basically started life all over again and, and you know, got, got uh, integrated into that society. Uh, a, a generation later, when the Soviet Union kind of regime, the Soviet regime uh, took over Bulgaria uh, as part of the Eastern European bloc, um, my father then further escaped from Bulgaria. Uh, he didn't, he didn't want to live in that in that situation he was probably like ended a, up... a pretty active capitalist it sounds like at the time probably did not look kindly by uh, the communist uh, authorities. well i think i think he was very young he was 20 years old i think rather my grandfather was and he did not want his his son um in fact it's kind of this is too much details for the audience but my father's the director of the national opera of, of bulgaria as an immigrant uh, and uh, he was he was an opera director, and he couldn't leave. His 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 wife was the was the lead singer in the wow. opera of, of 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 Sofia, and so he stayed. And and his brother, at twenty twenty one years old, escaped Bulgaria, and he then settled eventually after living in 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 Greece for a little while. He settled in Lebanon, which is where I was born, and uh, and of course you know as calamity seems to yeah. uh, trace our our family. 
uh, the civil war in Lebanon in 1975 well, forced us. Yes. Well, 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 it can stop there because because yeah, it does seem like calamity seems to, to to follow your 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 family. What year were you born in Lebanon? Uh, I was born in 1962. Okay, so like 12 years before the start of the civil war, about. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So at that age, at what, that can, age, you can, know, sorry, can, can I ask what nationality sure. did you have when you were born in in Lebanon? Oh, complicated question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Uh, so of all things, quite a quite an odd uh, uh, happenstance. But you know, when you live in these multiple realities over generations, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of see these stories. So, um, so here here's the the, the, the uh, so the answer to your question is Persian. Hmm. Uh, and of course, nobody in my family had had Persian citizenship for hundreds of years. But it turns out that uh, a generation before my grandfather, so my great grandfather, used to do business between Turkey and Iran. And there was a big Armenian community in Rasht. And he was basically living back and forth between where his family was in Turkey and his business affairs in Rasht in Iran. As a result of that historical tie, and because of the Shah, and the, and the standing the Shah had in the world, etc. It turns out that the Iranians were willing to give citizenship. Now you might say, well, if you're born in Lebanon, how come you're not Lebanese? And it turns out that that is, uh, you know, immigration laws are different in every country. Yeah. Uh, in Lebanon, if you're born of a Lebanese citizen mother, you have no standing. If you're born of a Lebanese citizen father, by the way, I'm not sure if it's changed in the 50 years I haven't been there or 40 years. Uh, but if you're born of a Lebanese citizen father, then you that's the only way you can be Lebanese. So you were born, as you said, in 1962 as, as an, with, you know, an Iranian citizenship. When you came, I know we're fast forwarding a little bit, but when you came to the United States, did you uh, still hold your, your Iranian nationality, your Persian nationality? No, I have one other detour. So we escaped from Lebanon to Canada. At the time, Canada was the only place that was willing to take us effectively as refugees mm -hmm. uh, because of our Iranian citizenship. So we moved yeah. to Montreal okay. and I, I obtained Canadian citizenship. Okay. And after that, with Canadian citizenship, I came to the state. Well, that's I mean, that, that's interesting to me because, you know, as you know, now, you know, under the current administration or current regulations, you would not be allowed to to come to the United States because you had that uh, Iranian nationality, that Iranian citizenship. Point. Historically, good point. That's right. And, uh, and it's, even it's, though, and ironically, I didn't even have anything to do with being Iranian in the sense that it was basically a historical kind of passport by descendancy, which was kind of a interesting uh uh, kind of a, a free ticket out of places uh, when we needed it. Um, I would love to to talk to you a little bit about your your conversations with your great aunt. I mean, it, it's sort of fascinating to me as you know, a thirty seven year old Jewish person who's um, you know our you know the Jewish experience with the Holocaust with the genocide is sort of one generation closer. Um, I suppose than than the Armenian experience, and you know, in in a lot of like my family's history, and I have no sort of personal uh, descendants um, of of the Holocaust. You know, they're kind of purged in pogroms before the Holocaust, but um, there there was often, uh, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, this big generational gap where survivors just like wouldn't talk about their experience. It was almost like a taboo. 
to talk about their experience for various reasons. And uh, I'm wondering if, if your great aunt uh, was sort of open uh, about her experience and how those conversations manifested themselves as, uh, as, as a child and as, you know, an adolescent when you were growing up. No, it's a, it's a good question. I think that my great aunt's situation was, was privileged in the sense that um, her family, she lived in the same city from which my grandfather and his brother were taken away, and it would have been a matter of time only for them to be taken away, uh, as were others. But they, they moved, because the family had the means, they moved to Istanbul. And as has been well documented, the Turks were very careful not to do large-scale programs in Istanbul, because there was so much foreign presence in Istanbul. And so they managed to, her and her mother, et cetera, the people who were left, the non-males were were, uh, able to kind of stay below the radar and not get get forced into a march and and, and, and et cetera. So what she knew and what she experienced was from the point of view of the many, many relatives, et cetera, who who were affected, including her two brothers, um, and, and, and as a result, perhaps she was not hesitant to, to talk about it, but I would say that, you know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of Armenians at the beginning, after the genocide viewed it as a harrowing experience, but did not conceive of it quite the way perhaps, uh, after the Holocaust Jews conceived of it because the language didn't exist. You may, you may know, or you may not that Raphael Lemkin, the Jewish I think lawyer that Polish, I think lawyer who coined the word genocide actually coined it in to describe the Armenian genocide. He's the one, you know, there's an interview on, on CBS, I think 60 minutes that's, that's available. That's, uh, that exists. Um, that, that has him talking about exactly that. So the reason I say that is when you don't even have a language, it's a little bit like when people get diseases for which there's no name and there's no, there's no etiology, there's no description it's very hard to talk about the fact that you're afflicted with this condition. And I think that that was very much the case in the case of Armenians. They wanted nothing more than to get on with where, what their new reality was. And I think it's only, and the injustice probably partly ashamed that, honest, and a lot of, and I know this for a fact in among many conversations I've had, and I think part of it, they felt almost guilty that they survived. And you might find that very hard to fathom, but, they found, I think the survivors, who were the only ones who got to even reflect on this, actually kind of felt like they were sometimes arbitrarily saved and they weren't deserving. And since they knew that their relatives, their friends, their just random people around them had been killed or died, they you know lost. So so it's a little bit like you carry the shame, you carry this mm-hmm. guilt, and you want to get on with it, and you don't think what you have is a condition because the world doesn't even have a name for what happened. I think all of those things caused uh, the, the, the generation right after to be traumatized, unable, and in any case, unwilling to talk about it. In my great aunt's case, it wasn't the case because she had not endured that trauma. And, but I could tell in her a, a level of, I'd say, optimism from the time, you know, 1965, 66, when I have memories even, which would have been 50 years after, that she was much more interested in recovering and restoring what Armenians used to be than dwelling on what happened because she kind of, I mean, used to tell us that, you know, we used to have this, we used to do this, and and we've got to get back to that. 
And so that was an interesting thing to uh, to witness. So, so was it your generation then, the the grandchildren of survivors uh, and people who who made it out, that is responsible for bringing these crimes to to light today and bringing this experience to light today? If if it sort of was not your father's generation who did it, is it is it your generation now? Yeah. No, I would say my grandfather's generation went through it but they were young enough that they had a whole life to live. Certainly, generally didn't do it. I would say it's my, it's my rather parents' generation that brought this to the attention of the world, but they did that through seeking justice, which they never received, through, in some cases, you know, kind of uh, uh, acts, of, acts of terror to draw the world's attention to it. There were waves of that in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, there was nothing more than a frustrated group of people that were basically realizing that the world just didn't care about justice, didn't care about what had happened. Of course, that is not a very um, uh, productive way to achieve a goal either, especially a human rights goal. And, and then I think what has changed now in my generation and even subsequent generations is that the narrative is becoming more balanced between justice, recognition, and actually a different topic, set of topics. And Aurora as a project is really in that light, which is, okay, what good can we bring to the world based on this experience? And it seems to us there's two sets of goods we can bring. We can bring through the notion of gratitude in action, the awareness that as a survivor, you actually have a special opportunity and responsibility to enable people who are doing the work that you benefited from generationally, that's one. And then second, is to offer a path to survivors to think about how they can go through the same road we've walked, the same road Rwandan genocide survivors have, frankly the same road that not just genocide, but any number of survivors walk, to go, to go from survival to then revival, and then eventually to be thriving people. And that road, that kind of finding meaning and purpose in the second chance you've been given, whether it's you or your descendants, is something that Armenians know something about, and we're kind of trying to bring that into the narrative. So I'd say ours has been not the first wave of folks who are concerned about recognition and, 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 and correction, but rather maybe the first to start thinking about what else can we do with this hmm. experience that's good for the world. Um, can I ask, how did you end up in Montreal from Beirut? What was that path? Uh, well, uh, at, you know, my father decided uh, when the civil war started in Lebanon, he having lived through another civil war in the late 50s, uh, before I was born, um, he, because he wasn't rooted in Lebanon, literally, uh, he basically asked himself, is this the place where I want my three, at the time, my three sons uh, um, to grow up and, and, and how much pieces they're going to be here and how much opportunities they're going to be. And based on, I remember it well, because we were of an age where we could understand this situation. Uh, he, you know, fortunately for us, had a lot of relationships with various government officials, not just in Lebanon, but foreign, foreign nationals who were in the diplomatic corps. And the clear sense he got from talking to them, whether it was Americans or Canadians or Europeans, was that it was going to be a long, long fought battle. It was not going to be a short thing. That was not the popular belief. And so my father basically just uprooted the family within a few months 
and we had some small family in, in Canada and Montreal. He considered taking us to a number of places and he eventually settled on, on Montreal and literally on August 31st of 1975, we got on a plane and showed up in Montreal. Uh, what, what neighborhood did he live in? I'm, I come from a long uh, line. Of, in, uh, Montreal is my ancestral home. Uh, uh, that's <laughs> nice. That's nice. I live, we live on the corner of Sherbrooke and Field Street. Right oh, the right, right there, right, right in the middle of it. And the reason is because in Lebanon, people lived in apartments, not houses. So okay. when my father, as an immigrant, kind of off the boat, moved to Canada, to Montreal. He couldn't fathom the switch to living in a house. And so we ended up in an apartment building, which is where I grew up. Okay. Um, and I suppose that was probably right, right around the time of the Olympics as well in, in Montreal and, and, you know, a vibrant time in, in that city it's for right. sure. Um, it was. So, so throughout this, your, your family has a history of being entrepreneurs, it, it sounds like, and, you know, being survivors for one, um, constantly moving for, for another, uh, but also this kind of spirit of entrepreneurship seems to have um, been a part of, of your, your history and in your background. Um, how was it that you sort of decided to, you know, become an entrepreneur and, 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 you know, pursue your education in, in, as you did? Well, it, it was, it's a curious path as, as everybody has some paths. Um, I came to, I came from Montreal after my undergraduate degree to to Boston to a PhD at the time uh, at MIT in a in a burgeoning new field which later became known as biotechnology. I, so I've I, heard I've I heard of it. The first... <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so in the early 80s in the early 80s there wasn't really a field and uh, an engineering school at, at MIT the chemical engineering department took it upon itself to start training engineers in biology, which, which of course it wasn't clear what anybody was going to do with engineering of biology. But I, and I happened to be in the first cohort of students who came here to do that. And, 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 and that would have predisposed me down a path of either becoming an academic, especially in a new field, you need academics to go populate the other schools who then start entering the field or work in a large company. Those were the clear two paths uh, for an MIT PhD student in the in the mid '80s, um, I didn't have some chance meeting, uh, which I'll tell you about very briefly. Um, it's kind of interesting, interesting how the world, how, how life happens. I ended up in 1985 at a conference that the NSF had put on, National Science Foundation competitiveness, and MIT had sent me there as a representative of of the new biotechnology field. And I sat at lunch with an older gentleman who I you know, mustered enough uh, courage to ask what it is that he did. And he started telling me that 30, 35 years earlier, he and another fellow had started a company, which I didn't know what that was about. And he described how at the time there was a new breed of engineers called electronic engineers that came out of the power engineering field. And he and this fellow decided that these electronic engineers were going to be making things and they needed to be able to measure how these electronic circuits worked. So they decided to start a company that made oscilloscopes and they were the developers of the first oscilloscopes that then were used to do initially analog circuits and eventually, you know, really usher in the electronic revolution. And I was sitting there thinking pretty linearly, you know, I'm in a new engineering discipline, the new breed of engineers, biological engineers, maybe I can do that. And so I started thinking that in my mind and I eventually asked him who he was and he was David Packard from Hewlett Packard. Huh. And so go. I <laughs> sat there for a couple of hours and listened to this 
you know, somebody who was my father's age, ordinary sounding person, which is really important by staying now 40 years or whatever later, I resent how entrepreneurs are presented as somehow superheroes and that makes them totally unapproachable and therefore people conclude, I can't do that. Well, it turns out that if anything, if there's something that everybody can do, it's entrepreneurship. And and he made that point very clearly to me. He just said, listen, it's a life choice you make and you struggle and you you have to adapt. And, and if you can do that and if you deliver value to people, then people need your, your spirit and your innovation. Came back to MIT and started trying to educate myself in this. There was very little, if anything, at the time educationally about what it is to be an entrepreneur. So I kind of wanted to learn about innovation, how that happens, management. And, and eventually when I got my PhD, I started a company. And that's how I ended up doing entrepreneurship, singularly based on that meeting. What was the company you started? It was a company called Perceptive Biosystems. It was a company that made tools, much like David Packard's, for the nuclear engineers. And the tools we made were tools that were used for analyzing and manipulating proteins that have become the, the drug of choice in the biotech industry. And that company grew as a startup. Again, you know, 30 years ago, that was a very different environment where you, know, you raised a couple of million dollars and it was extremely hard and it took you years to spend it. Of course, now it's a very, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 times difference. But basically it was the same road, you know, struggled, learned, developed products, launched them. And eventually the company grew that so that by 1997, it was a public company for five years already. We had about 800 employees and about $100 million in annual sales. And we became one of the leading providers of instruments uh, in the biotechnology field. Uh, and and at what point, um, after having sort of achieved this degree of, of success, um, and, and I imagine a lot of financial success as well, uh, did philanthropy become important to you? You know, I, I didn't think about philanthropy in the first instance, but I did think about the, the situation in Armenia, which is kind of I guess my notional homeland in the sense that nobody from my family has lived in what is modern day Armenia for, 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 for a long, long time, but notional meaning it was my adoptive homeland. And when Armenia kind of got out of the Soviet union and started and then faced a, another war uh, with, with its neighbor, eventually coming out of that in 1996, seven, eight, which was around the time my first company perceptive got sold. I've been involved in many other companies since, but, that when that company was sold, I started kind of thinking about what it is I can do for Armenia as a country. And, you know, usually people bring their, their know-how. And so my know-how was a bit esoteric. I mean, I know how to start companies by the time I was involved in five other companies uh, as a co-founder. But I realized that what, what was more needed perhaps was the rather the spirit and mindset of an entrepreneur at the level of how a startup that could be a country. So kind of thinking entrepreneurially about what are what are the spaces in which we could compete, what's the uh, reward system that's needed, what are the laws that are needed. So collaborated with a partner who's, who's been my partner in all this for 17 years, Ruben Vartanian, and we're co-founders of Aurora and, along with a number of other projects together. Really, he was a, a, a Russia-based Armenian descent investment banker, and he had built the the most powerful investment bank in Russia, single-handedly, starting at 23 years old. And so he was a very special guy. I had to happen to meet him at Harvard one time when he was there taking a, a short course. And uh, we decided together to enter into not the field of philanthropy, but the field of development, entrepreneurial development applied to 
a country that needed a lot of help. And and through that process, we started first with a uh, with this project called Armenia 2020 that that allowed us to do a lot of strategic scenario planning and thinking about what are the core strengths of the country and how could we excel in some areas and build from there. Social development projects because we realized the country had short term pretty big challenges. Um, that that whole journey took us to several years later having some roadmap of where interventions could happen. And that roadmap in turn took us down a path of philanthropy where the projects we've been doing for the last few, kind of I'd say maybe last uh, eight, nine years, uh, whether it be in, 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 in tourism area where we've built clusters in the country where lots of jobs have been created. Um, again, in that case, not for profit on our side, but for profit for all the businesses that mm-hmm. were created around it, or this international school called UWC Dilijan that we've established that really is a, a beacon of educational excellence and international. So 82 countries send students there every year uh, in, in Armenia, and they get uh, advanced education there in, in the last two years of high school, uh, to Aurora, to a, a science and technology foundation we've now started recently. There's a lot of different initiatives, but all of it kind of made us, if you will, into philanthropists. But first, it was more the entrepreneurial spirit of saying, can we actually bring about change through innovation in these places? It's just interesting to me that um, this kind of combination of catalytic philanthropic investments and nation building kind of overlap and and coincide with each other and and that you found some sort of discrete projects in which to, to invest, you know, not taking over, obviously like trying to rebuild the whole country, but finding out, you know, kind of discrete areas in which your investments, your philanthropy can make yep. a difference. Anything else we should look out for in, in terms of uh, the Aurora Pies of City? Uh, April 24th, you said they are uh, <laughs> announcing your finalists. We announced the finalists, and then June 10th, we will announce the laureate. There will be a big, every year we've done this ceremony that will take place in Yerevan, Armenia, together with, with a conference uh, or a dialogue conference. This year, we're doing a number of Aurora Dialogues. I'm in New York because we're doing an Aurora Dialogue conference at with the 9-11 Memorial and Museum today, this evening. So there'll be a, a significant event there. We're doing several other ones in Moscow and, and, and London. So we've begun to take this movement and take these notions a bit more broadly uh, to different uh, centers and, and engaging different folks that are interested in these topics to, to collaborate and with us and at least communicate. And so that's really what's next is, is, is really trying to enlarge the, the, the like-minded group of folks that can, that can engage with these activities. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was interesting. Thank I you. think my audience will, will really appreciate learning this history. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Nubar. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, I do have a conversation with one of the laureates of the uh, Aurora Prize for Awakening Humanity. So stay tuned for a future episode uh, to learn uh, about her amazing story. That's all I'll say for now. Also, uh, thank you to everyone who is writing reviews on iTunes. I will, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, send you a sticker in the mail if you leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. I I so appreciate it. It does help grow the audience and and improve the visibility of this show among people who are looking for foreign policy podcasts. So thank you. I will see you next time. Bye. 
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.